What you just watched was a, just a seven-minute version of an hour conversation I got to have with Jeff McKee, an anthropologist who teaches human evolution at OSU and is an uh, active part of our church. So Jeff, thanks for sharing. Uh, he's a person of faith who uh, believes in God and, and still maintains his scientific views. And I want to share that story because I know there's sometimes science is uh, a barrier for people. Um, it's sort of like, I don't want to get myself fully to this faith or fully to Jesus um, uh, because of this barrier that's in my life. And so I wanted to just show you one, one story uh, where uh, science doesn't have to be a barrier to faith. And if you're interested, if, if that's you, if that describes you, I'd encourage you to go check out uh, the full conversation. Go to our website, uh, centralcity.co slash podcast. It's one of the podcast episodes, both audio of the full conversation and video. So we're on week three of our series on Genesis, and we have... Uh, we finally made it out of Genesis uh, chapter 1. So, uh, woohoo! We did it. Uh, we'll look at Genesis 2 today, and next week we'll be on Genesis 3, and then, and then we'll be on Genesis 4. We are going to take a short break in July, uh, for a couple weeks in July. Um, Alyssa and I are taking some time off. We'll share more about that next week. Um, but uh, then when we get back, uh, we'll be on Genesis 5, and then Genesis 6, and so forth. And we're going to kind of sit with Genesis for a while as we work through the story. We might not spend time with every chapter. We might skim a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to spend some time with it. So I'm excited about the teaching for today, though. I, I feel um, that God might really have something to say. So if you want to open your Bibles, uh, we're going to be on Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse uh, 4. Um, and I'm going to read some of, it, uh, some of it here. Here's what it says. Genesis 2, uh, verse 4 through 8. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and we ask that you bless the reading of your word, that the, the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth might be pleasing to you, that you might speak to us, that you might illuminate the scriptures and allow them to come and intersect with our life, that we might know you more, and that we might become the people you've created us to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Genesis presents two creation accounts, uh, two different sort of takes on the creation story. you got Genesis 1 into chapter 2. There's a couple verses of the first account in chapter 2. I uh, didn't research on why that's the case. But Genesis 1, a little bit of chapter 2, and then you got Genesis 2 starting with verse 4, these two different creation accounts. And this is for a lot of different reasons. This is a common theme in Scripture. Uh, it happens all the time. Uh, um, you've got a variety of examples. In the Old Testament, you've got uh, you know the book of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, both sort of telling various parts of the same story, but from different perspectives and with different purposes. Um, and then you've got, of course, the Gospels. We're going to spend some time in the Gospels later. We've got four different accounts. They're all a little different. They all have slightly different purposes and audiences in mind. So you see this all the way at the beginning. Uh, we see that, that the Bible is going to be a collection of books that represent different perspectives. And so you've got Genesis 1 and you've got Genesis 2. It's kind of the same story, different perspective, different purpose. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today. Um, 
uh, these two different perspectives. And, and I want to do that by, by looking at a, a little detail that I've always overlooked, um, and maybe you have too, I can't say, but um, for me, I've never really noticed this, I never thought about it, um, but a commentary had to point it out to me, and I want to share with you and what I think it might mean. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are different in a lot of reasons, a lot of ways, uh, but one of the things I find most interesting is in Genesis 1, God is referred to in, with one particular name, and in Genesis 2, it changes. You can kind of see it in the English. You kind of got to know the Hebrew, but if you're paying attention, you could probably pay attention. You could figure it out. But if you go just even just in Genesis, the first part of Genesis 2, when it's talking about the seventh day, it says on the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. It just simply says, just the detail of the name of God, it just says that God, just God. The word here is Elohim. Um, it's a generic title for God. It's not a name like a proper noun. It's just God. Um, you would use it in other places to refer to other gods or the gods. It's actually uh, often found in the plural sense of gods. Um, and so that's what you see consistently through Genesis 1 into chapter 2, that first account, you see Elohim, God. But in Genesis 2, starting at verse 4, where the second account takes place, it changes. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth from the heaven. The Lord God. Here's what's happening with that. Um, uh, pro tip, uh, when you see in the Old Testament the word Lord, and it's in all caps, L-O-R-D in all caps. Sometimes it's even offset in various translations, like it's a different size or it's italicized or it's just, it looks different. The word there, and it's, it's an un... I'm not a big fan of that word. Lord is, of course, important because God is our master, our Lord. But the word there is Yahweh. And so here in the second account, it doesn't just say God. It says Yahweh Elohim. And, and the reason that matters is because Yahweh is a proper noun. Yahweh isn't a, a generic word used to describe a god. It's a name given specifically to the Hebrew people to refer to their god. So a, a generic noun would be like a car, right? You just have a car. But then Subaru would be the proper name for my car. Um, and then if I gave my car a name like... I don't have a name for my car, but some people do that. It, that would also be a proper noun. Uh, the same thing, like, I'm a human, but my prop, the proper noun used for me is Joe. So in Genesis 1, we're just told about God, generically. In Genesis 2, we're told about Yahweh. We're given God's name. I want to think about this just for a second, and I want, I want to wrestle with it because this is really, this is, this is how the story starts, and so I want, to, I want to sort of graph this out and see what happens. So I got my uh, trusty uh, dry erase board here, and uh, I want to show you this graph. So you can see as we're starting out in the, in the Genesis story where we're headed. Up here, um, uh, this, is, this is Genesis, right? You're not going to be able to read my handwriting, so you just have to listen. And this is Revelation. You know, like that's where the story's headed. So this is the biblical story, this direction. What we start is, is something very general. Uh, very, um, uh, uh, you know, impersonal. This is what we know about God. It's just God, just the generic term for God. What we see is down this line, we get very specific and very personal you kind of like, this is unknowable, this is knowable. What, this is what happens. We have here Genesis 1. It's just God, you know, just this generic God. 
In Genesis 2, it's already starting to become a little bit more personal, a little bit more specific. In fact, the whole Genesis account in Genesis 2 is not, you know, God in Genesis 1 is like, let there be light. And he's like this idea of God just pointing. Or let there be humans. In Genesis 2, it's like, hey, I'm going to get my hands dirty, literally. And I'm going to dig in the dirt. So what happens is, is just from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, first two chapters of the Bible, we move from general, impersonal, to specific personal just a little bit. That's where we're headed. Now, I did learn in school that if you have two dots, you can create a straight line. So uh, uh, here is, um, if we were to draw this out, here's where we would find ourselves. This is the trajectory of how we're going to know God. This is my favorite part, though. This right here, this is where the story's headed. That's Jesus. The moment where God couldn't become any more personal, any more specific, any more knowable is this moment right here, and this is Jesus. So we kind of get a sense, if you're following the trajectory of Scripture, you get a sense that this is where the story is headed, where God is moving from this sort of unknowable force in the world to someone who can be known, someone who can touch and feel, and someone who we can meet. And so in Genesis 2, we learn a couple things about this God. We, we get a little bit closer into the story of who God is, and God is kind of painted as a, a, a three things, three things that describe God, um, three verbs that are used in Genesis 2 that are actions God takes, and they give us a picture of who God is. So here they are. Um, the, they are God of forms in the dirt. The word here is used of potters. Um, throughout Old Testament, it talks about a potter forming the clay. Um, and so God forms, so God is a potter. That's one thing we learned about God in Genesis 2, becoming a little bit more specific. Who is this God we follow? The second one is God breathes, like a, like a bellow. The commentary I was reading referred to it as a bellow. Uh, an air pump would be uh, equally accurate, um, but uh, you didn't come to church to hear of God as an air pump, so we're going to go with the old school word bellow because it just sounds cooler. But God becomes a bellow. You know, like breathing is one of the actions. So form out of clay, dirt, dust breathing. And then the third one is planting. God is this gardener. So I want to look at each one of these um, just um, briefly about who this God is. So in uh, verse 5, it says this, no, uh, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the ground and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust. We're told that this world is formless, uh, like Genesis 1, a world that's this empty canvas. Uh, you've got dirt, but you've also got this water making it. So you've got clay, essentially. And God creates humans, but God gets his hands dirty. He digs into the dirt um, and kind of this picture of a potter forming God, uh, forming humans out of the dust. And I think this is significant. God doesn't just point and say, let there be humans. God digs into the dirt. God is involved. This is the first thing we know about God, that God wants to be intricately involved in the human narrative. Not from a distant, not this sort of distant God that just kind of does things from distance, but the God that like reaches down and pulls us up out of the earth. This is the first picture. A potter is so intricately 
involved in the clay. We see this image throughout Scripture. One of the places is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be probably somewhere around in this part of the story of God. But uh, Jeremiah, and uh, I want to read it for you. Uh, what we find is, is with each one of these images of Genesis 2, God says, I'm, I'm a potter, I'm a bellow, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gardener. We see these pop up later, and we're actually surprised you're meant to be surprised on how God actually lives into these things. And so the first one is later when we learn what it looks like for God to be a potter. It says this. This is what the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you the message. This is Jeremiah chapter 18, starting with verse 1. He says, so I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working on the wheel, the potter's wheel. I don't know if you've had a chance to work on a potter's wheel. I've had the privilege. It's really a fun tool to use. If you haven't, I encourage you. It might be a great date night someday post-COVID, uh, to go find a place that'll let you work on a potter's wheel, but it's, it's, it's very therapeutic, it's very interesting, it's surprisingly difficult. So he goes to this house of this potter, and he's working on a wheel, um, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. And so Jeremiah is watching this happen. And then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and, and, and said this, "'Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does?' declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. Here's what we get a picture of God being the potter. God is not only intricately involved in our lives, but God gets to, you know, decide whether we're finished or not. You know, this is the hardest thing. Uh, Jeff mentioned this for different reasons, but in the interview, he talked about how Christianity, it's hard to, hard to be a Christian and an atheist, and I want to put words in his, uh, his mouth, but I'll share my own perspective why I think it's hard to be a Christian is because um, just when I think I'm done, God's like, nope, time to reshape you. You know, you got to learn something new. Uh, and, and it's like you're watching this potter, and, and they put all this work into something, and they're like, nope, not good enough, and they kind of smash it. They put it back into a circle, and then they start to wheel back up, and they start again. And that's like this, like, whoa, you almost had something there, and then you started over. That's what God says. He, he reserves the right to do that in our lives. He's not talking here really individual lives. If you read on, he's talking about the community of, of, of Israel. But, but the, I think the principle applies both individually and to us as a people. That God can say, hey, you know what? It's time, for, it's time to be reshaped. There's some things that aren't right. There's some things that in our city and in our country that aren't right. It's, it's time to reshape. We're not done. I think one of the greatest sins we can, we can li- live into as people, and especially as people of God and as people who follow Jesus, is to say, I'm good enough, you know? Like, I've, I've, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't want to step on grace and say that grace isn't essential to who we are, but God wants us to become the best version of ourselves, and creation didn't end at creation. God is this potter who wants to reshape us. That's the first image we get in Genesis. The second image is we get this picture that God is the bellow. Verse 7 says in Genesis 2, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust and the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We get this picture that God is the source of our life. That God, being the source of all life, chooses to give us life. That if we walk around without the Spirit of God, without the breath of God, we are just dead people walking. And that God is the source of all life and that God gives us our life and, and God gives it to us willingly. You know, um, back to the graph. If you look at the story and how it progresses, when you get to this point, the breath of God shows up again. It shows up in the Spirit. It shows up in Jesus' conversations with his disciples. It says Jesus, you know, breathed on the disciples. But um, one of the most powerful ones 
is actually in Mark and in other Gospels, I believe. But Jesus, who, who became uh, God in the flesh, the most personal, noble form of, of God, the perfect revelation of God, word made flesh, John says, and representing the breath of God. And you have this God in the flesh meet us, is then tried by an unjust system, ends up on a cross, and the gospel reader tells us with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The breath of God stopped breathing. We get this picture in Genesis 2 that God's willing to give us life. We, we shouldn't take that we should never take that lightly. But, but I don't think, I don't think that st- when we start the story, when the people of Israel started the, living the story of the Old Testament, I don't think they would have guessed that, that that meant that God would give us life even to the point of surrendering God's own breath in this story of the crucifixion where God couldn't breathe and dies. The breath of God breathes no more. It's not where the story ends, but... But it is a point in that story where God becomes truly um, someone who can sympathize with all of us who at one point will breathe our last. God knows what that feels like. We don't even know what that feels like. It, it breaks our heart when we see it happen, especially when we see it happen on a, on a, on a, on a cell phone video. No, we don't want to see that. God, the person Jesus, knows what that feels like and breathe his last. The last thing that we see of, of God in Genesis 2 is that God went into the garden and planted paradise, Eden, paradise. And God is this gardener. Um, you know, as an agricultural culture, uh, Scripture uses a lot of agricultural themes. Jesus teaches predominantly out of parables that involve agriculture. And um, this idea that God is a gardener is, is just rampant throughout Scripture. And th- there's, there's a lot of ways it's used, but one of the primary metaphors for a lot of these parables that Jesus teaches and even what you see in the garden is this simple idea um, that I'm beginning to realize because we have a garden at our house for the first time. And uh, we've, we had a few plants last year. The year before, we tried, but it wasn't too successful. But now we've got a garden. We've got a Tomato plant, pepper plant, all sort of stuff. And what I'm beginning to realize about gardens is the simple principle of the, the, the best parts of creation, the best plants, that you, the things that you want to eat or the things that you want to grow, they require the most care. And the more beautiful they are, the more uh, fruit they produce, like sometimes the more fragile they become. Um, think of wine. Wine in the Old Testament through the New Testament till today is this luxurious thing that people took really seriously. Um, wine can be ridiculously expensive. And I don't know a lot about wine, but I've watched enough movies about vineyards because uh, I'm a sucker for a good vineyard movie. You didn't need to know that. But um, that I know that like there's something about the soil and, and, the, and the pH level and like the way in which you grow it. All of this plays into, supposedly, the way in which the wine tastes. Like the best part that what we can do with creation often requires the most care. It reminds me of this, this meme. Uh, uh, I don't know if you guys can put this up. I've seen this in a couple different places. You got roses. And the rose says, you know, the pH level of the soil is too high. I'm going to die. I've never tried to grow roses, but that's what people say about roses. You got to get it just right. The dandelion on the other way is like, yay, concrete, I can do this. A rose, this beautiful rose requires 
requires the right environment. I'm going to end with this thought. In Genesis 1, or in Genesis 2, we get a picture of God in the garden in paradise trying to order life in just the right way so that everything can thrive. And friends, that is not the world we live in anymore. It's just not. We live in this world that is far more broken and so filled with concrete. Roses don't have a chance anymore. They just don't. And so here's what I want you to say. When we get to this part of the story on the graph where Jesus enters into the world, the theme of gardener comes up again. And it shows up in uh, the, the Gospel of John. We're told that after Jesus dies and he breathes his last, that Jesus is placed in a tomb. And we're told in John that that tomb was in a garden. We're supposed to be thinking about Genesis 2 at this point. If you don't believe me, go read back the beginning of John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is like, no, this, remember when you're reading my gospel about Genesis because I'm going to start out with my own creation narrative. I want you to be thinking about Genesis. So John, when it comes time for the resurrection, the tomb is in a garden, the garden tomb. And Mary goes and she's looking for Jesus and she goes to the tomb and she's in the garden. You know, he walked with me. Maybe that song comes to mind for you. If not, it does for me. I'm not proud of it, but don't worry about it if you don't know what I'm talking about. And um, he's in the, she's in the garden, and she sees this guy. Now, in the resurrection stories, people never recognize Jesus to begin with. Um, it's a common theme, so she's not going to recognize Jesus. She doesn't know that this guy is Jesus. But what she assumes, what we read in the gospel story is this. The, the, the man, who is Jesus, but she doesn't know that, says, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And she's thinking he was the gardener, John tells us. She's like, oh, this is the gardener. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. She thinks this guy, who is Jesus, is the gardener. I wonder what Jesus, Jesus had just risen from the dead. He's hanging out in this garden. What was Jesus doing that would give her the impression that he was the gardener? Was it just the way he was standing, where he was standing, the fact that he was kneeling? Was he tending to some plants? I mean, he uses parables about plants all the time. I mean, he seemed to have, as, you know, an interest in them. But I don't know what he was doing, but she thinks he's the gardener. And so we're given this picture of the resurrected Jesus as yet still this gardener. But here's what I want to tell you about how Jesus was a gardener post-resurrection. Jesus planted a community known as the early church that really took off after he ascended. And, and this was not a rose-colored community. The conditions were not ripe for it to grow. An immense amount of persecution. Every obstacle you can imagine. The Jews didn't want anything to do with Christianity. There was, there was a, uh, I don't know if you can call it racism, but the Jews and the Gentiles, uh, uh, I guess racism, yeah. They didn't like each other, and it's one of the major themes in the early church. There were so many things that would be against the early church becoming what the early church, but it grew anyways. And what I realized is that Jesus, as a gardener, wasn't so much interested in creating the perfect paradise for roses to grow, but was a gardener of dandelions, of people who could use resurrection power to break through. Just like he did, Jesus laid in the ground and grew out, breaking through the cracks of his tomb against all odds, and then says, you can have that resurrection power too. You, you can experience what it looks like to be resilient against all odds and become the people I've called you to be. Paul says it really well in Romans. Romans chapter 8, it says, If God is for us, who could be against us? 
No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is not the song of the rose. The rose says, that sounds hard. I'm going to check out. This is the song of the dandelion. It pushes through the concrete. And that's the garden that Jesus is in the process of making in us. I, I say this to say this to you. If you right now aren't facing something that seems insurmountable, you will. But I know for a fact many of you are. You're in the midst of something that just you don't think you can overcome. And this world in all of its brokenness and all of its dry places and all of its concrete walls just feel like they've become, you can't do it. God met us at creation. God got his hands dirty. Uh, God, God, God made us and then breathed life into us and then began building a world for us. And all the way to the story of Jesus, Jesus came and his resurrection story, his death and resurrection is a story about how God can overcome anything, even death. And you might be saying, you know what, Joe, I might not survive this. I have some friends in situations right now where they're like, I might not survive this. And here's the resurrection story. Even death, Paul says, can't separate me from the love of God. It won't be strong enough. It won't hold me back. And if that's the case, then I don't know what it is you're facing. I, I, I want to grieve with you. I want to... I want to feel what you're feeling. I want to hear. I want to be there for you. But I want to remind you that there is hope. That God is not done with this world. That God is able to work in your life. That God is not done with you. And that there is nothing in the name of Jesus that can separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we just give you thanks. Lord, wherever we find ourselves... We find ourselves in that place where we're in that comfortable reworking, where life is being restarted in strange ways for us, and we're experiencing our own paradigm shift, and we're like that clay in the potter that says, let's start over. If that's, if that's us, Lord, please just remind us that, that you are still in control and that you have good plans for us. Lord, as we wrestle with um, all the things going on in life, remind us that you have given us breath in our lungs and that we are here for a reason. And that when we face obstacles that seem insurmountable, that you are still the gardener and that you are creating ways in the concrete. No barrier can stop us in your name. That we are more than conquerors already. That you aren't done with creation and all of its brokenness. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.